You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th, 2024. I'm Reno Valentino from Drake University. Here's our first story. Lack of firefighters, a serious situation. The Glenwood Fire Department has shown Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, Glenwood Fire Chief Matt Gray says the volunteer department is struggling to find volunteers. It's a different culture today, Gray says. And there's a culture of the fire department and a run-down looking fire uh, station and fire hydrant. Uh, Scott Stewart took the photos for the nonpareil. Uh, local departments worry they don't have enough volunteers, written by Tim Rower. Help wanted. Local fire departments are looking for volunteers willing to set aside some personal time to protect others from potentially dangerous, even fatal, fires. Apparently, it's difficult to find these willing souls near and far. I think it is happening all over, Josh Billings, chief of Hancock Volunteer Fire Department, told the nonpareil. The departments from those I've seen are always needing volunteers. Recruitment of volunteers is getting harder and harder. I remember growing up in Hancock and there were always a waiting list to get on the department, Billings said. It seemed the only way to get on was if someone moved away or retired. But now, there's no waiting list. Billings is also a member of the Oakland Volunteer Fire Department. Both need volunteers, he said. Glenwood Fire Chief Matt Gray echoed Billings' statement. It's a struggle, he said. It's not the same as 20 years ago. It's a different culture. People are spending more time just doing other things. Just last fall, Pacific Junction saw a volunteer fire department ban disable. At that point, the department had just four remaining members. The community has struggled since the 2019 flood caused many residents to move elsewhere. This not only caused the reduction in the department volunteers, but a loss of property tax revenue for department operations. All the departments in rural areas are important, said Karina Nepal, Pacific uh, Junction City Clerk. When asked if the community will start up a department again, Naples said no decision has been made. We're letting it simmer for a while, Naples said. We would like to see it start up back again, and there has been some interest from several people. Any new department would likely need at least 10 members, she said. Currently, as in the past, Pacific Junction is receiving fire service from Glenwood under a mutual aid agreement. To make matters more complicated for volunteer departments, calls for help for fire and medical are rising. Currently, Hancock has 15 volunteers, including four younger members, who joined in the last five years. I think 20 would be a great roster, Billings said. Last year, the fire, the Hancock department handled 60 fire and medical calls, higher than before the pandemic, while Oakland handled 400 calls last year. Also higher in the past, Billings said. Meanwhile, Glenwood is a combined department with seven full-time paid employees, three paid part-timers, and 15 volunteers. There's three to four people a day here at the fire station, Gray said, adding that volunteers are assigned different shifts to handle things more efficiently. We get a lot of calls here, he said. What's more, Glenwood services neighboring townships, including Pacific Junction. So why is the need for volunteers growing? The reasons are numerous, fire officials told the nonpareil. There's a lot of time commitment, Gray said, referring to the training involved for firefighting and especially EMT training. Then there's the continuing education each year. You need a lot of hours, Bill Billings said. Many work outside of town or 
have to work longer hours at their jobs or even have multiple jobs, Gray said. A lot of people don't want to do public service jobs when they can make more money doing elsewhere, he said. Then there's the time needed for parents taking their kids to school functions like dance recital sports and the like, he added. Gray said he's heard some departments dropping training requirements as a way to get more volunteers, which he isn't he does not condone. I agree with the training requirements, he said. They have to have training. State lawmakers have made efforts in recent years to entice more volunteer firefighters. They passed a bill offering a tax credit on state income taxes for these volunteers. At first, the credit totaled $50, but today it has increased to $250. If a volunteer serves for an entire calendar year, if less than a year, the $250 credit would be prorated based on the number of months that volunteer served. Gray didn't seem too excited about that. As far as any impact, it's a little tax relief, but nothing major, he said. It gives a little bit of a write-off, but that's about it. Billings wasn't impressed at all. Volunteers don't do it for the money, he said. They do it for the community. It needs to be huge, drastic. Last year, the Iowa legislator passed a bill allowing volunteer firefighters to buy a set of new tires no more than once every three years for their vehicles for the fire calls using the state's discontinued rates. The idea is to save volunteer firefighters money by using the state's buying power to put tires on a vehicle they use when responding to calls. Though it is perhaps too early to gauge whether the bill has any had any impact. Anything that can be used as an incentive is good, Naples said. Naples said that an official with one Iowa department has started started a program where high school students age 14 and 15 begin firefight training as a way of getting interest and knowledge of those duties. Those young trainees are prohibited from going on calls until age 16. So far, it's been successful, she said. The Mills County Board of Supervisors is aware the short age of volunteers have come up with a possible monetary solution. The board is considering placing a tax on the November general election requesting funds for equipment as well as hiring for certain positions like emergency and medical services. More specifics are to come later, according to the board. Meetings with the public on the proposal would be held in advance, board members said recently. It's a serious situation, said Supervisor Carol Vinton on the lack of volunteers. Elections from Al. Lobbyists resent representing city and school board groups said similar said smaller districts often have difficulty recruiting candidates to run for office, requiring cities and school districts to conduct and pay for a separate primary election would add those difficulties, they said. I'd prefer that we would not have to spend money on an election that we could spend on a teacher instead, or a program that is really important for students, said Margaret Buckton a lobbyist for the Urban Education Network and Rural School Advocates of Iowa. Matson, who voted against the bill, said the issues that local officials deal with are not partisan. At forums for school board candidates in her community, she said, candidates talked about the specific issues facing students and teachers rather than partisan issues. Whether it is curriculum and standards or making sure that buildings have great security, those are the issues that are dealt with at the school board level, she said. I don't think it helps anybody or any Iowan, for that matter, to unnecessarily enforce partisanship. Supporters say bill will increase transparency, boost turnout. Some supporters of the bill said that 
it would give voters more information about candidates in local races and allow them to make more informed decisions. They also said they believed it would increase turnout as voters would feel more confident making decisions on who to support. Research has shown that a lack of party affiliation on the ballot leads to lower turnout in local elections, and incumbents have larger advantage in nonpartisan elections. Voters are also more likely to skip nonpartisan races on ballots that have a mixture of partisans and nonpartisan races. Andy Conlin, a lobbyist for the conservative think tank Opportunity Solutions Project, said it can be often hard to find where school board candidates stand on issues without sinking out and speaking to them one-on-one. I don't have the time to sit down with every school board candidate that's going to be in charge of our district, he said. This is a marker. This is a signal to the low information voters. Hey, generally speaking, this is what they generally believe in. Bald Eagle's busy at Lake Manawa. A juvenile bald eagle lands near its mature counterpart on a patch of ice as Canada geese and ducks swim across the water at Lake Manawa State Park on Wednesday, February 7, 2024. The recent unseasonably warm temperatures opened up some water on the lake, inviting eagles for more accessible fishing opportunities. Joe Shearer photos for the nonpareil, and we have some eagles as they sit on the ice on this lake with a bunch of geese sitting on it. Another photo shows a bald eagle just about flying away from a tree. It says a bald eagle flies past a tree during a windy morning at Lake Manawa State Park on Wednesday, February 7, 2024. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources will be holding a training opportunity for volunteer bald eagle nest monitors on Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. via Zoom. Find out more information at tinyurl.com slash iowavmwp. A bald eagle soars over Lake Manawa State Park as two Canada geese fly by on Wednesday, February 7, 2024. And there's a bald eagle in the air with the two geese in the distance flying past it. There's another photo, the bald eagle landing. The bald eagle flies past a tree during a windy morning lake at Manawa State Park and sits on a perch in a tree at Lake Manawa. Iowa West welcomes board committee member. The Iowa West Foundation recently welcomed several new members to the organization. Council Bluffs native Emily Solomon began her role on staff as the office coordinator and former advisory committee member. Mike Alford was elected to the Iowa West Racing Association board. In addition, Cody Forenstall of Carson, the CEO of the Powertech, and Tim German of Council Bluffs, the president of Frontier Savings Bank, were named to the IWF Advisory Committee, which plans a key role in its grant making. We are pleased to welcome these individuals who will represent our community. Well, Tara Silvine, Iowa West Foundation Board Chair, said in a news release, Their experience and expertise ranges from education to banking and small business ownership, which will be extremely valuable as the foundation strives to create communities where families love to live and businesses thrive. Solomon brings with her a wealth of knowledge in the field of education, as well as her most recent experience serving as a network performance partner for The Honor, where she excelled in a program development and technology for senior citizens. Growing up in Southwest Iowa has allowed me to witness firsthand the incredible impact of this foundation on our community. Solomon said, joining forces with a committed team, I am thrilled and honored to contribute towards fulfilling the mission of making lasting and positive changes. Alford 
who is vice president of the Pinnacle Bank, echoed through those sentiments. My family and I have lived Council Bluffs for more than 30 years, and I have witnessed the amazing impact that the Iowa West Foundation has had on our community since its founding, he said. I'm truly excited and honored to be a part of the organization that will bring forth even more positive change to the place we love to live. The Iowa West Foundation and Iowa West Racing Association boards also reflected officers for 20 uh, re-elected officers for 2023 in addition to Slevin as IAWF board chair Tammy Pavich was re-elected IWF vice chair Kate Cutler was re-elected IWRA president and Warren Weaver was re-elected IWRA vice president board members and advisory committee members have the significant responsibility of being good stewards for the foundation's assets and ensuing ensuring that we are listening to the community and working together to help our communities and presidents prosper. IWF President and CEO Brenda Mainwaring said that in the release, we appreciate all these volunteers who give of their time to serve their place in this capacity. Nominations for board members are made by Council Bluffs Chambers of Commerce, Council Bluffs City Council, the Council Bluffs Community School District, and Potawatomi County Boards for Supervisors. The Iowa West Foundation is one of the largest private foundations in the Midwest. It has awarded more than $550 million in grants and nonprofits in governmental entities throughout the Southwest Iowa since the inception of the grant program 25 years ago. Funding from the grants comes from investment earnings in the Iowa West Racing Association, which receives contractual fees from Council Bluffs, casino operators, IWF target resources, and programs and projects that focus on belonging opportunity, financial stability, and well-being. IWF funds Children's Square trauma-informed care training. Children's Square USA recently completed a year-long training of staff members to provide trauma-informed care for children. A $50,000 grant from the Iowa West Foundation allowed uh iowa's children's square to initiate this programming and an ongoing effort to provide direct care staff with appropriate education and skills to help children who have an increasing number of trauma symptoms according to the news release we are grateful for iowa west foundation grant in their support for our work viv ewing president of ceo and children's square said in the release as children's emotional and mental health needs increase our care must continually adapt to meet these needs so that our children can enjoy healthy, productive lives. Iowa West President CEO Brenda Mainwaring said the foundations the foundation was pleased to support the training at the 141-year-old organization that serves children with mental health needs. Child welfare agencies are facing a multitude of challenges that make the implementation of trauma-informed care critical, Mainwaring said offering assistance to organizations in our community that support all facets of children's health and education is a long-standing commitment of the Iowa West Foundation. Trauma-informed practices are based on understanding that healing depends on healthy relationships and fostering a culture of trauma-informed care within an organization increases safety, trust, and support for the healing process. Children's Square collaborate with Omaha-based Project Harmony, an organization that helps children who have suffered abuse on staff training. 
Through training and supporting our staff in trauma-informed approaches, Children's Square is committed to establishing environments that fosters healing and resilience for children who have endured experiences no child should face, said Jonathan Holland, Chief Programmer Officer for Children's Square. In this ongoing effort, trauma-informed principles have now become the foundation of our practice and treatment methods, reinforcing our unwavering commitment to providing the best possible care for those we serve. Children's Square, a check presentation pictures from left. Viv Ewing, Children's Square President and CEO Jordan Morse, Thriving Families Alliance Early Childhood Coordinator, and Stephanie Du, Children's Square Supervisor of the Children's Center. And we have a photo of the three of them holding this big old check in there, and they're all smiling and look great. Children's Square gets $20,000 Thriving Families Alliance grant. Children's Square USA receives a $30,000 grant from Thriving Families Alliance for updated and improved handicap accessibility entrances, summer programming for children playground improvements, and increased staff training and education. The mission of Thriving Families Alliance is to empower a caring community that promises the well-being of every child, said Patricia, Patricia Russman, Executive Director of Alliance. We are delighted to support Children's Square because its Children's Center provides quality care for children and works with all families regardless of financial situation. This inclusivity helps provide much-needed child care for our community. Viv Ewing, President of CEO of Children's Square, echoed the need for quality child care. We are grateful for this assistance from Thriving Families Alliance that allows us to continue to improve the accessibility of our campus facilities and playground and provide additional training and mentoring for our staff who work with our children every day ewing said the organization's children's center the longest serving certified child care center and council bluffs that opened its doors in 1969 has openings for three and four year olds contact children's square at 712-322-3700 or childrensquare.org to enroll west Nishnabatna RCPP sets virtual meeting for landowners. Golden Hills Resource Converse, Resource Conservation and Development, Natural Resource Conservation Service and Hungry Canyons Alliance, through the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, will be providing landowners in the West Nishnabota uh, watershed technical assistance and cost share to implement conservation practices. This project will implement practices that are aimed to help increase water quality, increase flood resiliency, and protect public and infrastructure, according to news release. Such practices will include stream bank and grade stabilization, as well as upland practices such as cover crops, terraces, and bioreactors, among others. The project will complement the similar activity on private lands to help mitigate catastrophic flooding events. This series of public informational meetings will explain the project, how your property can qualify in the application process. Meetings are planned February 29th and March 7th at noon. More information, including links to the Zoom meetings, are available at goldenhillsrcd.org, reepp.html. Will President Finally Deter Militias, Iran? Telegraphed U.S. attacks in Iraq and Syria don't appear to be doing the job so far. The United States last week launched what must be one of the most advertised military attacks against the enemy in history with what the Pentagon said were airstrikes on seven facilities run by Iran, backed militaries, militias in Syria and Iraq. 
U.S. officials broadcast for days that strikes would be coming after the drone attack that killed three Americans at U.S. base in Jordan. Biden administration officials signaled that the strikes were likely to be against the militias and not against Iran. Leaks to the media even suggested the U.S. was waiting for skies to be clear in the Middle East. Militia leaders can't say that they weren't warned if any of them were still around the target areas. They are the world's dumbest terrorists. U.S. officials said the strikes hit 85 targets that included command and control centers and storage facilities for rockets and missiles. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officers are likely to have vamoosed. At least the administration has signaled that the U.S. strikes could last for days or longer. They have a lot of capability. I have a lot more, said Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. The question is whether the U.S. will use enough of that capability to finally send a message of deterrence that sinks in. The weak U.S. retaliatory strikes haven't worked so far, despite more than 160 enemy attacks on U.S. bases or ships since mid-October. The multiple U.S. warnings recently sent a message that don't U.S. that the U.S. doesn't want to do too much damage to the militias who might consider that another sign that the U.S. fears is escalation. The attacks on Americans are likely to send end only when the enemy fears escalation more than President Joe Biden does. The real test will be whether these strikes and convert U.S. actions such as cyber attacks will deter Iran, the rulers in Tehran, are the terror masters behind these militias, and so far they have paid no price for helping to kill Americans. The White House has used its boss Wells in the Washington, at the Washington Post and New York Times to suggest that President Biden is the wise voice of restraint in contrast to war-hungry members of Congress, but that restraint has resulted in, the, in three dead and many wounded Americans, and the Houthi missile narrowly missed a U.S. Navy destroyer in the Red Sea. There's a time for restraint in a time for using enough force against the right targets so that U.S. troops are no longer fodder for enemy target practice. Biden could win even with abysmal approval rating. There's bad news and good news for those who want to see President Joe Biden win in 2024 or who really just want to see the former President Donald Trump lose. The bad news is that in the era of modern polling, no president has ever won re-election approval ratings as low as this point in their first term. For fairly obvious reasons, incumbent presidential generally needs to get at least close to 50% favorability by election day to win. Biden's approval is stubbornly, stubbornly low, around 40% in polling averages, despite an improving economy. The good news is that approval numbers may not matter. You may not have noticed that a lot of the old rules of politics have passed their expiration dates. The truism, as goes Ohio, so goes the nation. Ohio always backs the winner. Didn't apply in 2020. The still widespread conviction that politics is all about raising money and that donors have outsized influence to pick the winner hasn't really been true for quite a while. Just ask Michael Bloomberg or Ron DeSantis from 1888 to 1996 the Electoral College vote followed the popular vote in 2000, and again in 2016, that didn't happen. For decades, winning presidential and congressional candidates followed the rule that you swing to the base in the primaries and then tack back to center general election. Barack Obama largely ignored that rule, and Trump really ignored it. Successfully, 
Most senatorial and congressional candidates ignore that rule entirely. That's because the real challenge to incumbency is in primaries, not general elections. Candidates increasingly rely on turning out their base rather than persuading voters in the middle. They're this point to one reason that approval ratings may not matter as much as they used to. In polarized electorate, most voters vote against the other party more than they vote for their own. A recent Quinnipiac poll finds that among voters who dislike both candidates, Biden has a commanding 13-point lead. If that holds, it could be all Biden needs. A second reason why approval ratings might be unreliable, Trump is essentially running as a Republican incumbent. Normally, Republican, normally presidents who lose don't run again, and they certainly don't claim that they didn't actually lose. Presidential approval ratings have tended to be predictive because re-election bid is a reference, ref, referendum on an incumbent's first term. Do voters want more of the same or change? But voters already know what a Trump presidency would be like, or they can be reminded with a barrage of negative ads, Trump left office with an approval rating of 34%. It's true that Trump beating Biden in many hypothetical matchups in battleground states that should worry Democrats and anyone else who doesn't want Trump in the White House, but Trump's unfavorable ratings are still higher than Biden's indeed. Trump has always had a high floor of support, about 34%, but also a very low ceiling, about 48%. Unlike Biden, Trump has never actually been popular. In a general election, when partisans reluctantly come home, basically to vote against the other party, Biden probably has a much larger pool of hold-your-nose voters to rely on. The expiration or temporary suspension of other rules is relevant too. Republicans in 2022 were expecting a red tsunami given Biden's unpopularity and the struggling economy. Democrats did shockingly well because they ran in effect against Trump and Trumpism and for abortion rights. Indeed, the old rule that the abortion issue helps Republicans got turned on its head after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade as recent state initiatives suggest, Biden could be carried by abortion rights voters alone. Biden is already opening a massive gender gap with Trump abortion, surely explains much of it, though his trials for assaulting and deframing is writer E. Jean Carroll and for allegedly playing hush money to porn star mistress probably didn't help. Attacking Taylor Swift as his most Ardent supporters have done recently won't fix that. All of that said, if you believe a second Trump presidency would be a disaster for the country, rerunning a very unpopular incumbent on the hunch that old rules no longer apply seems like a risky bet. Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, thedispatch.com. And then we have a photo of Jonah Goldberg here. A nice guy with glasses and a goatee. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Rating you know, Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Reno Valentino from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243. 6833. Once again, that's 515 243 6833.
Moving on to the obituaries, we have Mark Patrick McGuire. Mark Patrick McGuire, age 54, passed due to sudden cardiac death, preceded in death by parents Louis and Charlotte McGuire, survived by wife Sandy in Sandy E. Hildren, Stephanie Radil, and Bill Purcell, grandchildren Liam and Grace Radil, brother Donald Patrick McGuire, sisters Connie McGuire and Stephanie Peterson. Twin brother Mike Patrick McGuire, nieces, nephews, and many visits many friends. Visitation with his family Friday 9 a.m. till time of service, celebration of life Friday 11 a.m. at Carisco Larkin Saskowitz Chapel. To view a live broadcast of the service, go to the funeral home website and click on Mark's obit and stream services. Cherokee archaeologist seeks to preserve prehistoric mounds by Nick Heitrick. Swiss City Journal. During his 32 years as a state ar- archaeologist, Mark Anderson observed and investigated all kinds of historically significant sites across Iowa. But not long after his retirement and subsequent acceptance of the part-time staff archaeologist job at the Stanford Museum and Planetarium in Cherokee, a little more than a year ago, he received a call alerting him to something he'd never seen before, at least not in this part of the state. Intrigued, Anderson visited the site and was excited to see low conical earthen mounds near a river. When I looked across the river terrace and saw a number of small mounds, it was pretty obvious these were man-made. Anderson said, you pretty much know right away after you visited them. The mounds likely are burial sites of prehistoric native peoples who lived here hundreds of years ago, Anderson said. Visits to about... A dozen other sites yielded similar findings in a new puzzle for the veteran archaeologist to ponder. I was not aware of many mounds at all in the northwest Iowa, he said. They're located in places I wouldn't have expected, and I wouldn't have looked if I was doing this on my own. Now, he'd like to find as many sites as possible so this ancient history can be documented and preserved. I don't think we have a really good grasp of mounds in northwest Iowa, he said. There may be more mounds than we think. Part of my desire to find these resources we're not really aware of and let people know so they can preserve them. Prehistoric burial mounds look like small domes and can vary in size from 16 to 30 feet in diameter and up to 2 feet tall, Anderson said. Native people's customs in entering the dead began about 2,800 years ago. And the burial mounds are common in the eastern United States, stretching into eastern Iowa, where many mounds have been found. They're usually located on elevated positions on hilltops and ridges, which explains why few were thought to exist in northwest Iowa. Aside from the lowest hills in Woodbury and Plymouth, in Plymouth counties, there where mounds are known to be located, this part of the state is pretty flat. Great Plains peoples who may have lived in this area also didn't construct mounds, which explains why they're rarely found on west of the Missouri River. Anderson's interested in searching an area known as the Northwest Iowa Plain, the Little Suio River Valley that includes Suio, Leon, Osceola, O'Brien, Cherokee, and Clay counties in portions of Woodbury and Plymouth counties rather than elevated sites. Mounds he has observed in this area are on terraces along rivers and streams, like be, likely because they were the highest points 
available and not in danger of flooding. Anderson was a lot has a lot of questions like why some cities have more mounds than others, and he hopes finding more sites may lead to some theories. I have a lot of guesses, he said. There are enough out there 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 are enough out there that I need to look further. That is where the public comes in. Anderson asks that landowners contact him about possible sites so he can take a look. There are compelling reasons for landowners to let him do so. If mounds are found, landowners can receive tax incentives for preserving archaeological sites. Anderson said the locations would be kept on file at the state archaeologist's office and not made public, so landowners should not have concern about having tourists or artifact hunters trespassing on their land. Thousands of mounds have been lost over the years to erosion and cultivation by settlers. Anderson said the mounds can be so subtle that farmers tilting the land in the past likely never realized they were accidentally destroying sites. Cattle grazing has also likely worn down some mounds over the years, making them indistinguishable from the surrounding terrain. Before more mounds are lost, Anderson said it's vital to find as many as possible to better understand the people who once lived here. Very little is known about them, he said. There are 26 native nations that trace their ancestry to Iowa, and a number of them are likely descendants of the people who built the mounds. Archaeologists aren't interested in excavating the sites, he said, but instead want to leave them undisturbed and catalog them so there's a cord of their existence. We would like to preserve as much natural history as possible, and landowners and private citizens can help us with that a lot, Anderson said. Landowners who think they may have mounds on their property can email Anderson at archaeologist at sanfordmuseum.org or contact him through a museum. He's eager to hear more about potential sites. I don't know what the result will be, but I suspect we'll find more than anticipated, he said. This is really exciting for me. And then by Tim Hines, we have a photo of Mark Anderson, archaeologist at Sanford Museum and Planetarium in Cherokee, Iowa, describes the known Native American conical burial mounds found in Cherokee's Oak Hill Cemetery. Anderson said it was previously believed that there are few, if any, such sites in much as northwest Iowa because of the generally flat terrain, but he has confirmed more than a dozen sites along rivers and streams that would make it like to find more so they can be preserved and then we have anderson here wearing sunglasses in a big puffy coat as he's in this field with a bunch of small mounds and you could see right there uh taken by the university of iowa office of the state archaeologist the prehistoric burial mounds shown in the site and how they look the photos are black and white for television puppy bull turns 20 here's what to expect this year by Mark Kennedy, Associated Press. The annual Puppy Bowl turns 20 this year, well over middle age in dog years, but does the sheer cuteness of it ever really get old? Who doesn't want to watch dogs play all day long, asks Lori Johnson, the director of Florida Little Dog Rescue in St. Cloud, Florida, who's been part of the Puppy Bowl for a decade. There are some changes this year to the canine football telecast. Four previous Puppy Players returned to be inducted in the Puppy Bowl Hall of Fame, and the show, which has grown to include armadillos, hedgehogs, and chickens, will focus on dogs. What we've done this year to flip the whole script is because it's sort of a celebration. celebration 
of the fact that it's the 20th year, says Puppy Bowl referee Dan uh, Chenier. We've decided to go all in on Puppy, making it the most puppiest Puppy Bowl ever. The Puppy Bowl made its debut as counter-programming to the Super Bowl in 2005. Dogs score touchdowns on a grid, uh, gridiron carpet when they cross the goal line, any goal line, with a toy. Rescue mission. The show is really just an excuse to spend time watching adorable clumsy pups in colorful sweaters play with chew toys, wag their tails furiously, and lick the camera. A deeper reason is to encourage animal adoption. We always say the same message every year. Adopt, don't shop, says Shainer. These There are responsible breeders out there, but it's kind of uh, defies logic that somebody who's searching for a dog would look beyond their local shelter or rescue. Florida Little Dog Rescue, which, like all puppy groups, is vetted by Animal Planet, sent seven pup players and two Hall of Fame inductees this year. Johnson, who volunteers her time, says it's an honor that Animal Planet picks up her pups year after year. It does bring attention to our rescue, which helps some of our other dogs get adopted. But honestly, for us, the biggest excitement is that we're helping dogs all over the country in homes because rescue is not a competition. It's a cooperation, says Johnson. Most of the puppies are usually adopted uh, by airtime since the show is filmed in the fall. But the point is to show the animals just like the ones on the show can be found at any shelter at any time. Shayna also has the some advice for anyone who falls for a particular pup on the broadcast. That animal is probably likely part of a litter, right? So there's probably siblings out there that are still up for adoption. Or their parents, their mom, their dad is in a shelter looking for a forever home. Playtime parameters. The inaugural Puppy Bowl was watched by nearly 6 million viewers last year. 13.2 million viewers turned, tuned in. The largest reach for the event in five years. In comparison, the Emmy Awards telecast on Fox this year reached just 4.3 million viewers. This year's show will be simulcast across Animal Planet, Discovery, TBS, True TV, Max, and Discovery Plus. The dogs are split into two teams Team Fluff and Team Rough. And each dog is given a nickname, like Slick Rick or J Paw, and a specialty like Epic End Zone Dance. They are free to frolic, but many face penalties for things like unsport like dog conduct and trash barking. Awards are given most valuable puppy and new this year, an underdog award for the most introverted pup. This year's broadcast is built on the work of dozens of volunteers as well as 600 pee pads, 200 poop bags, 10 bags of treats, 30 water bowls, and 18 cameras. The cat halftime show also will return. Shana started refereeing 13 years ago when there were 59 dogs invited. I'll never forget that because I thought that I was that was a tremendous amount of dogs to be trying to officiate in one place. He says the number has by now more than doubled with this year's broadcast featuring 131 puppies. The scope and size of the show from this time I started 13 years ago to now is just very impressive, Shaner says. Entrance requirements include being healthy and sturdy enough to be on the field with playmates, be three to six months old and have no training. We don't want dogs that are show dogs. We are that are sitting there with a trainer. We want to see them in their puppy glory. Part of that 
is to show what puppies are in their true state, says Shaner. They are playful, they are curious, they're going to get in trouble, and they're going to do crazy things. And from time to time, they're going to score touchdowns and really impress you. And then we have referee Dan Shaner officiates during a puppy bowl airing Sunday. It will simulcast on ML Planet, Discovery Channel, Discovery Plus, TBS, True TV, and Max before the Super Bowl. And then we have Shaner on the little field, and he has a bunch of puppies on him and stuff that are playing, and they're going around. There's the two fluffy ones that have blue collars and two that have little red collars, and they're licking his face. And then there's another photo of this year's Puppy Bowl. features 131 puppies, and there's a dog here. I don't know what type of breed. I think it's a beagle, and it's by Animal Planet Photos. Moving on to some sports. For high school basketball, Eagles top trainer to claim Wick Crown. The Underwood Eagles celebrate a boys basketball conference championship with members of the student section under the hoop. We have a photo from Austin Heenan, and we have this group of all the uh, high school basketball players here. They have face paint on, they have their jerseys, they're holding up uh, this big poster in the middle, and they're in their gym here of uh, the Eagles and the winning and beating the Cardinals here. Class 2A, number 4, Underwood, was crowned the Western Iowa Conference champion for the first time in program history after defeating Class 2A, number 7, Trainer for the second time, 65-56, at Riviere Arena in Council Bluffs. The Eagles fell behind 7-2 early on, the, then replied with a 16-3 run to close the first quarter to take the lead and... Though the Cardinals once trimmed the lead down to a four in the third quarter, the Eagles never allowed Trainer to take back the lead back. It's a good feeling, Eagles coach Brad Blum said. There's a lot of adrenaline with everyone right now, and I couldn't ask for a better group to do this with. Trainer definitely threw the first punch, but we were able to weather that and take control afterward. And it's a statement, testament to our guys. The Cardinals looked to make the first move with a 7.0 run that put them ahead, 7.2 early on. But the Eagles found their offense in the form of a 16-3 run to close the opening quarter and boosted their lead to as large as 14 late in the second quarter before, before Jace Hibbs hit a shot before the buzzer for the first half. The Cardinals made their push midway through the third up to the first two minutes of the fourth, where an 11-5 Cardinals spurt made it a 46-42 ball game with six minutes to go. But that was close as the Eagles let Trainer get as the Eagles responded with a 10-2 run in the next four minutes to put the game out of reach. The balance on this team is unbelievable, Vas uh, Van Vossen said. There aren't a lot of teams what have the balance we do when we go into the postseason and if someone has an off game, we have confidence that someone can step up like tonight. Jack Van Fossen led Underwood as one of four players in the double-digit points with 16. Owen Larson and Masson Boothby each added 14 points, and Josh Ravlin scored 12. As the stats show, it was a team effort in this Eagle victory. It feels awesome, and we're really stoked, Boothby said. It's the first time the boys have ever won the conference title, so it feels really good to put our names in history and school history and to do it like this with back-to-back -back wins over trainer. I don't know if that's ever happened, but right now it just feels really good. But we're not done yet. National Signing Day. 
Lewis Central's Largest Class Signs Next Level, written by Peter Burnett and Austin Heinen. Lewis Central Football had eight players signed to continue their academic and athletic careers at the next level on National Signing Day Wednesday. We are excited for each and every one of them, Titans head coach Justin Camrad said. I know they all had a dream growing up to be able to go play football at the next level, and today's just a sign of them, just a sign of them and everything that they've achieved. The hard work, dedication, and just to see the dreams come true is something that's really exciting for us in our program, as well as for us, our other kids, to be able to see what possible playing for our program. The class is the largest in Lewis Central history to sign to play football at the next level. Garrett Rutledge, Iowa State, Lowell Maker, Caleb Moore, and Daniel Espinoza, Iowa Western, Curtis Witt, Ryan Ortega, Camden Cross, and Owen Thompson. I think it's just one of those things that have a true passion for the game of football. They love the game of football. They're willing to keep playing through that kind of stuff. That's just sort of all came together for these guys, and they sort of rub off on each other. They want to keep playing, Cameron said. And then we have taken a photo by Joe Shearer, eight Lewis Central football players going on to play sports in college pose for photos holding banners for the respective schools following a national letter of intent signing event on Wednesday, February 7, 2024 from left Curtis Witt and Lowell Maker, Caleb Moore, Daniel Espinoza, Ryan Ortega and Camden Cross, Garrett Rutledge, and Owen Thompson. And we have them all up on their stage, and they're all holding up their respective schools that they're going to be going to. And we have some there for Iowa State, which is exciting. In Native American history, mascot debate persists. Woman plays a drum during a no-honor in racism rally before an NFL football game between the Minnesota Vikings and the Kansas City Chiefs on October 18, 2015. In Minneapolis, protests are being planned at the Super Bowl once more in response to the Kansas City Chiefs name. And then we have this photo of out in front of the TSC, um, in the front of the arena here. We have this woman who's banging a, a drum, and she looks just beautiful, covered in feathers, and these just these colorful outfits, and this bag, and this face uh, paint. And it's all just super colorly, colorful and vibrant with reds and greens and blues. And they all contrast. And the feathers just go off. And they're just huge and look like this like giant like peacock as her hat. Um, some denounce return to contentious symbols. Written by Brooke Schultz. It was a passionate student letter in 2020 that caused the Southern York County School Board to reconsider its logo. A Native American man representing the Warriors. Through the conversation had come up, though the conversation had come up before in the suburban district located in southern Pennsylvania, 2020 was a turning point of racial reckoning after the death of George Floyd. Less than a year later, the school board voted to retire the Warrior logo after it considered research on the impact and reductive imagery had on Native and non-Native students. I understand the attachment people have to that at the school, said Deborah Kalina, who served on the school board at the time, but it's more than that. And I think we did the right thing. Three years later, however, the logo of a Native American man with feathers, a tomahawk, and a pipe is back after a newly elected conservative block acted on its campaign promise and reinstated it earlier this month. It's shaken Native communities across the country that work to challenge such logos, said Donna Fan Boyle, 
co-founder of the Coalition of Natives and Allies, and Allies. When one school district does it, they worry others will try too. Everything could just go backwards, said Fan Boyle, who says that she has a Choctaw and Cherokee heritage. It's a marked departure from a larger tide of communities deciding to change their mascots, a trajectory that has been underway for decades, but ramped up in 2020. The battle changed the use of Native Americans in logos, team names, and fan-driven behavior has often been in the bright spotlight due to major sports teams. The NFL's Washington Commanders changed their decades-old name in 2019, while Cleveland's baseball team became the Guardians in 2021. Protests are being planned at the Super Bowl once more in response to the Kansas City Chiefs. But beyond the high-profile fights to change names, mascots, and team identities, there are battles going on in local communities. It's a rare move for the Pennsylvania District to reverse course, but it's not the first time. At least two other school districts in Massachusetts and Connecticut reverted to logos that many Native Americans called offensive. A number of states have passed legislation to prohibit mascots in the years since. Nationally, the largest nonprofit dedicated representing Native nations, the National Congress of American Indians, has worked up to challenge the use of Native imagery in logos and mascots. The origination, the organization maintains a database tracking native mascots and has found nearly 2,000 schools still use them. At least 16 dropped their use of native imagery names between March 22 or April 2023. Suyo City Man Arrested for Robbing Bank Again A Suyo City Man was charged in the robbery of a downtown bank. A decade ago, he was convicted of robbing the same bank. Jonathan Bird Nicholas, 31, was arrested without incident, according to a news release from the Suyo City Police Department's broad necklace was booked at the Woodbury County Jail on a charge of second-degree robbery. Officers were dispatched to a Great Southern Bank after a man entered the bank and passed a note to a teller demanding the money. He received an undisclosed sum of money and fled on foot. This was not the first time Bird Necklace has been charged with robbing a Great Southern Bank. The October 2014, he was charged with second-degree robbery after robbing the same branch, the following spring, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but was eligible for parole after seven years. Taper Teaches Prompt Valentines by Mari Ducey. Sixth graders Macklin, Hannah, and Maddox Cohen can't wait each other morning to check the map hanging on their Omaha classroom. The hearts on it show how many Valentine's Day cards have come in and from where after their teacher Tanya Sandoval put out a request for them on social media. Although the effort is just starting to gain traction with the public, it's become so popular at the school that Sandoval has also posted maps in the hallway so that those in other grades can keep track too. It's cool how we've gotten cards all across the United States, Maddox said, and that people took the time and effort, Macklin said. The aim is to receive cards from all 50 states, but those from all over the world would be welcome. Sandoval said the idea isn't her own. It came from a fellow teacher and friend, Karen Wilson, who was also seeking cards at Peter Serapi Elementary in Bellevue, Nebraska. She got the idea from second grade teachers Jackie Einine and Kelly Fernay and Fremont Mills Elementary in Tabor. First grade teachers Trisha Goodman and Tiffany Meyer started the idea, which they call Love Makes the World Go Round. Students go to open cards and read them, something that doesn't happen a lot in today's world. Fremont Mills principal Allison uh, Fournier said they've already received nearly 300 cards. The kids absolutely love when the mail comes in, they said. 
The teachers have a large picture of the United States map. Every time a new state comes in, they color it in. We still need them. Uh, Sandoval has added a twist. She's using a reminder for students of how far just one private student's private post on Facebook can go. Cards received so far are from just one post she puts on her own private page. The power of social media and also the caution are soon to be middle schoolers need to take when posting on any social media platform. She explained to her students, I'm about all about trying to educate and doing it in a fun way, and that keeps them engaged. Macklin said he loves the whole idea. So far, they've got a mix of letters and postcards. Some are homemade. Sandoval, who teaches science and social studies at Dundee Elementary, reads each one to her students. Her favorite is an 85-year-old retired Omaha music teacher. One is a ride from the North Pole, Alaska, a letter from Switzerland, and that was delivered Monday was a big thrill. The Dundee students are considering responding to each and maybe even seeing whether senders would like to be pen pals. Everyday students want to know whether they've gotten cards from far away and more exotic places, such as Hawaii or even Australia. Sandoval said her students have been studying the ancient civilization of Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and it would be amazing to hear from those countries. I do tell a lot of people about it just in case they have friends around the world, Macklin said. And then we have a photo here. Fremont Mills students' table have a map showing the source of their valentines. Students color in a state once a card has been delivered from that area. And then we have a big old map of the U.S. here. And there's a bunch of little red uh, heart stickers all across the map. It looks like we're missing some from uh, North Dakota, uh, Idaho, Oklahoma, um, Arizona, and Wisconsin, I believe. And a couple other ones I can't see because it's a little smaller. But there's a big old map here. And some it just looks great. It's all colorful. They did a great job coloring it all in with a bunch of different colors. And with that, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Reno Valentino from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.